This episode of Into the Wild is brought to you by Leica Sport Optics. As the world opens up and we're able to venture forth and go and explore again, it's essential that we have the kit we need so we don't leave nature hotspots disappointed. With that in mind, I cannot recommend Leica Sport Optics enough. Leica not only have a great range of optics for a wide range of uses, but they also offer finance plans to help people like me that would rather pay bit by bit. I'm currently using the Leica HD Ultravids, and now I can clearly see all the birds that I am also still unable to identify. Read more about Leica's range via their website in the write-up of this episode. And now, on with the show. Hello everyone and welcome to Into the Wild. I'm your host Ryan Dalton. As always, thank you so much for clicking play on the pod. Welcome nerds to another episode. I always always try and find new ways of saying thanks for clicking play on the pod. And each time I I surprise myself. Um, Sorry if I sound a bit bunged up. I got a bit of the older old British autumn cold, which, you know, affects us much more than COVID. (laughs) I have to tell everyone when you've got a cold. You have to you have to apologise. You can't just have it. You know, you have to go around. So oh, sorry, 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 I've got a I've got a cold at the moment. No one cares, Susan. No one cares. Um but so, so sorry if I sound a bit bonged up. Um how has your week been? You can't answer that because I'm talking to you. How has my week been? It's been grand. Um I've got my brother's stag do this weekend. <laughs> so that's gonna be heavy so i'm looking forward to that. i'm going to wales i'm going to take my joe you know everyone's going to be drinking i'm just going to take my camera and go for a wander and see if i can find some nice nature stuff i wonder if i can slip out early of a stag do there's 15 people there they won't they won't notice i'm gone will they i can go and look for some like fungi or something and go and look lift some logs and look for some insects take my macro camera with me no one's gonna know no wait a minute everyone notice when i leave i'm six foot seven that's the thing about being six foot seven. You can't just sneak in or out. You, <laughs> you stand out when you're six foot seven. So I've got that coming up. And as I record this on the 20th. No, God, that's the time. <laughs> oh, how embarrassing. Oscar, don't edit that out. Let my listeners know how stupid I just was. I looked at the digital calendar on my laptop. Instead of the date, I read the, the time, which is 2053 in, in the evening. <laughs> the date is Wednesday the 13th of October. And um, as I speak to you today, the Wildlife Photographer of the Year. Wait, did I just say photographer? Weird. I don't know. Oh, good Lord. We're not editing it out, Oscar. But we're going with this. Um, the Wildlife Photographer of the Year was announced. And the winner was an absolutely incredible image of camouflage grouper fish spawning that was taken by Laurent Ballester. An absolutely fantastic photo. And it's nice to see fish winning, I'll say, for Wildlife Photographer of the Year. It's nice to see the fish get a bit of attention for a change rather than a large mammal of some description or a, or a bird. <laughs> So that's come out today. That was great. And we're seeing some amazing images. I mean, Wildlife Photographer of the Year is the thing, isn't it? I absolutely love it. I can't wait to go and see it this year. And it's one of my highlights of the year. And I didn't get to go last um, in 2020. So looking forward to going to see that and going to see Lawrence winning picture. Anyway, let's move on to... Well, actually, nerds, I'm changing this a little bit. Instead of 60-second nature news this week, um, I'm going to be sharing a competition that went live last Friday... I say recording this. (laughs) You know what I mean. This comes out on Monday. So last Friday, the 15th of October, um, a competition was released by Leica Sport Optics. So instead of nature news, we're doing this. But in nature news style, deep breath. Let's go. Leica Sport Optics ambassadors have partnered with a selection of bird charities who have an ongoing commitment to protect native birds and educate locals and visitors about the species and the importance of saving them. The competition is simple. All it takes is you lot to vote and decide who wins the price of a £5,000 donation from Leica. To vote, it could not be easier. In the write-up of this episode, you'll find a link. Simply click on that and you can cast your vote out of these following charities. The Yorkshire Wildlife Trust for the Willow Tip Project, Bardsey Lodge and Bird Observatory, the Bird Observatories Council, Curlew Action, 
Kent Wildlife Trust and Wildwood Trust Red Build Chuff Reintroduction, the Wildlife Trust and South West Wales Scoma Island Seabird Work. You have until Monday the 1st of November and the winner will be announced publicly. And of course, as always, terms and conditions apply. There we go. That is the Leica Sport Optics competition. So find the link in the write-up of this episode. Give that a click and cast your vote for a 5K prize. That's awesome. I tried to convince Leica to put the Ryan Dalton project down, but it, it didn't get in. Didn't get in. Didn't get in. Such a shame. <laughs> anyway, let's move on to today's show. On that note, talking about bird charities, we today are talking about two types of birds just two out of all those species we're talking about two birds two birds in the uk that have struggled greatly throughout um probably about the last century we're talking about corncrakes and curlews with nick ackerson who is a birder and ambassador for norfolk wildlife trust nick has also been kind of helping out with two projects local to the area in norfolk that have been trying to help curlews and corncrakes and his friends do some great work down there so he had all this wealth of knowledge to tell me but about not just the birds themselves but about what we are trying to do to bring them back and also to realize that if we manage the habitat for the curlews and corncrakes what else it can benefit as well oh that's interesting isn't it? There's a bit of a beaver work situation going on there it was cool so ladies and gentlemen i'm gonna blab on for too much longer i'm gonna welcome this episode which is oh also before i do sorry out of everyone i've ever spoken to about birds that's tried to convince me to be interested in them nick nick was the closest i've got to say that gotta give him credit <laughs> he told me some facts about birds i was like now this is interesting so ladies and gentlemen anyway enough of my mouth let's welcome this episode which is curlews and corn crates with nick ackerson welcome to into the wild nick it is lovely to get this opportunity to chat to you it's Beaming with sunshine in London. I don't know where you are or what the weather's like for you, um, but it's a lovely day here. How are you? I'm very well. Thank you very much, Ryan. And thank you for having me. It's also beautiful here. I'm looking out onto a village common in North Norfolk, which is where I live, and it's absolutely gorgeous. <laughs> it's a stunning day. Like there was a moment I was walking, I was walking on Hampstead Heath today, and I said to my friend, I'm going to have to move in the shade because I think I'm burning. <laughs> you are, forgive me, but you are the right colour to burn fairly readily, aren't you? No, no disrespect to people of your of, of your complexion, but you are the right colour to burn. But yeah, I mean, I was starting to think we were never going to have a summer at all. I know, I know. We've got autumn in August, now we're getting summer in September. I don't know what's happening to Great Britain, but do you know what? I'll roll with it. I'll roll with the, roll with the punches again. <laughs> um, but it's lovely to have you on the show. I said before we hit record, I feel like we've been following each other on social media for a little while and it's nice to actually finally get the chance to chat to you. So before we get on with our topic today, would you like to start by telling myself and the listeners, Nick, who you are and what is it you do? Well, my name is Nick Atchison and I've been involved in wildlife conservation my my whole life, really. I was very lucky that I grew up here in North Norfolk and was always involved with wildlife and had wonderful adults in my life who took me out to see wildlife and started teaching me about wildlife when I was just a, a mere nipper um, and then started volunteering just down the road from where I live at Pensthorpe, which at the time was a major waterfowl collection. And from that point on, really, have been teaching people, talking to people, explaining to people the importance of wildlife and our impacts on it and how we can perhaps redress some of those impacts. And after my degrees, I ended up in South America where I did that sort of work for um, 10 years. Wow. And subsequent to that, when I came home, I'd, I'd started leading birdwatching holidays all over South America. And I was asked, will I do more? And I ended up sort of traveling all over the world before I had a crisis of conscience and gave up flying because I was deeply, gravely concerned about the impact of um, flying on the environment wow. with the, the environment in the state that it's in. So yes, I exist in a post-flying reality. Um, and <laughs> ever since and alongside that, I've been working with conservation organisations here in Norfolk, mostly, including Norfolk Wildlife Trust, for whom I'm an ambassador. I'm 
currently president of the Norfolk and Norwich Naturalist Society, which is a big, big honour. And I do lots of work with various other organisations as well. The Holcombe National Nature Reserve, which is just up the road from me, and Pensop, which is just a mile and a half from me. Basically, I'm a very lucky boy, is the answer. <laughs> lucky and busy. That is, you know, across your career, that's a lot of stuff. And the flying thing's interesting. So you were like, you know what, flying's bad. I don't need to do it. Stop doing it. Yes, although it's a bit more dramatic in a sense. It was absolutely the right thing to do and it was therefore what I did and would not have thought otherwise. But mm. by that point, leading tours all over the world, and I've had the privilege of working on every continent. So, you know, the wildlife of the world and I, we've, yeah. we've become good friends. That was a big, big part of my income. And so, but I couldn't live with myself doing something I saw as unethical. So I stopped flying. I mean, good on you. I think I think it's a good thing to do. I mean, I don't think enough people do that. I don't think enough people say when they do it as well. It's not something we aside we hear about. I think people just do it. No, it's not. And I've been very involved with the amazing, you should get him on, you should get him on, uh, Javier Calidrio of Low Carbon Birding, who's a, just an amazing wow. man. And so I've been writing for him. And actually, as a result of that, I'll be speaking at this year's New Networks for Nature, which is the, nice. the it used to be a annual conference on wildlife and our relationship with wildlife through art and through writing and so on. And I'll be debating the subject of whether ecotourism is good for wildlife or bad for wildlife in environmental terms at New Networks for Nature and have just written for their brochure on the same subject. Amazing. I mean, well, from my perspective, Nick, before COVID, obviously, I couldn't really afford to fly. So I was nailing it. Like, you know, holidays abroad were a distant memory for Ryan. <laughs> Well, that's a, that's very noble, even if it's de facto, it's very, very noble. I was in a situation where I never, ever went on holiday, but my work took me literally to yes, every corner of, of the world. So I never paid for a flight, but ended up on flights the whole time and I couldn't live with it. So I gave up. Because you said you were leading bird, uh, bird walking tours around the world and, and stuff like that. Are birds your thing? Is that like you're kind of, you're like, you're really into the, the, the avian world? They were my passport into wildlife when I was very, very small. And they mm. were the first thing that I was really taught about. But actually, the teachers I had at school who taught me about wildlife, they were just as interested in plants, insects, mammals, etc. And many of the tours I've led around the world have been mammal tours, actually, people, people oh, wanting wow. to see snow leopards or clouded leopards or polar bears or spectacle bears or you name it, really. So I'm, I'm equally interested in all wildlife, really. It's wildlife Amazing. is my as as most people who speak to you on the podcast, wildlife yes. is my is my thing. <laughs> it is. It'd be weird if it wasn't. It will on be, yeah, show. that's right. No, yeah. I'm I'm only in it for the money, me. <laughs> Sex, drugs, and rock and roll. That's why I'm in it. I think I think you might have, especially with your loyal your look, you might have chosen another career if you were into it for sex, drugs, and rock and roll. I'm not sure. I mean, most of us naturalists are fairly weird creatures. <laughs> we're we're not. I mean, you know, take what you can get. Uh, <laughs> uh, let's let's talk about what wildlife means to you. So when we when you think about wildlife and nature, what what kind of does it mean to you? How important is it to you? Honestly, this is going to sound so naff, but it is the single most important thing in my life, other than my family and friends, my, my nephews and nieces. But but in a sense, anything I do for the environment is for them. Mm. Wildlife really is the, the guiding thread of my life. It's 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 why I exist. It's why I wake up in the in the morning. It's why I get out and and I lie in bed listening to tawny owls and barn owls fly over my house and little owls shrieking on the common. Nice. And very soon the time will come when the pink footed geese are flying over my house in the in the night time as they flight backwards and forwards between the fields where they feed and I go out every day and in my I run every day or most days and my head is identifying mm. flowers or butterflies or bees or whatever it's just it's it's my natural habitat that's nice it really is <laughs> and I'm very very lucky and and it, um I, I had quite an academic start in life and I should have been a proper mm. grown-up with a proper job but it was just never going to happen because what I'm passionate about is the natural world wildlife conservation I was always concerned about animals and their individual rights as a very tiny mm. child and then became very concerned about wildlife in general as, yeah. as a young person and now I'm equally concerned about 
the environment. And so really, I see my role on Earth as trying to help people be better or support conservation better and live more in harmony with the environment. That's really nice. Do you find like, do you really, I guess, it sounds like a motivator for you is a communication side, you like to talk to people about about the planet and stuff. That's really what I do. So for Norfolk Wildlife Trust, for various other organisations, I write and I speak and I teach and I do a fair amount of media and social media. And so it's, it's, it's all about helping people discover how much they love the natural world. Well, that leads us onto our topic quite nicely, actually, because we're talking about two animals today that, I mean, look, I've lost count how many times I've said it on this show. I made a tweet last year about not being a bird person, and it backfired greatly, as as, as you shake your head rightly in front of me right now, Nick. <laughs> and I obviously have been getting Ryan into birding, doing these episodes, and I've been learning about the world of birds. But today we're talking about two specific species of birds called corncrakes and curlews. Now, there's a reason we're talking about these two animals, but before we do, let's start with... Should we start with corncrakes? Let's start with corncrakes. Okay. What's going on here? <laughs> <laughs> well... Even though we're starting with corncrakes, in a sense, the things that have happened to curlews and corncrakes are very similar, although they've happened at mm. different times. The, okay. the corncrake is a very widespread bird. It breeds right the way across Europe and much of northern Asia as well, although particularly the west of Asia. And it is a meadow bird. It's a bird of, of long grassland. It's a bird of lush meadows, river valley meadows. and Historically, prior to First and Second World Wars in the UK, we were very much an agrarian economy and we were very much a mm. pastoral economy that, that most of our food would have been, or our food production from the land was actually yeah. livestock. And in winter, to feed your livestock, especially in harsher environments, you needed hay. And so to produce hay, you had meadows and meadows were harvested for their hay, but they were also the habitat that corncrakes would have bred in. And they weren't just, a lot of nonsense is talked about meadows nowadays, and people are talking about recreating meadows from a seed packet from the garden centre with a bunch of flowers that are, <laughs> just, just because a flower looks straggly and pretty doesn't make it a wildflower. People, we talk a lot about, here I'm off on a rant here. Um, Go for it, you'd rant away Nick. People, people talk about wildlife loving flowers. No, the flowers are the wildlife and there are specific mm. flowers which belong in places and they're what we need to encourage back because they're the habitat for all of the other species that go with them. So a plant that pollinators like is not is not an equal thing across the board really the native ones are the really important ones because they won't just have pollinators that visit them but they'll also have caterpillars sawfly caterpillars moth caterpillars that mm. feed on them they will have gall causing species that develop on them and so if you want maximum biodiversity you need a basis of the native flowers that should exist in that place but going back to corncrakes they need the same thing they need these old mm. hay meadows and traditionally the hay meadows were harvested in in a non-mechanical way they were harvested the community got together and Scythed. And that was very, very harmless to birds like corncrakes because they had time to move out. Because one of the things much, much later in the life of the corncrake, in the decline of the corncrake, when they really had retreated to the Scottish islands, to the Hebrides, they were being killed in large numbers by mechanical harvesting of the hay. Because you would start oh, with no. the tractor at the outside of the field and work inwards. And then the corncrakes would retreat to the smaller and smaller patch of... No! Yes. And so they were being... Like, like mopping the kitchen and getting stuck in the middle, but Absolutely. way more dramatic. Absolutely. Or painting yourself to the top of the stairs. Yeah. Yeah. Only <laughs> what happened to the corncrakes was they got minced. But happily in the 1980s... <laughs> um, Sorry, that's not funny. Um, but... Yeah. The, you really don't like birds, do you? If you can find that funny, no. Ryan. <laughs> <laughs> no. It was the delivery. It was, uh, okay, the delivery. Okay. I'll give myself a point there. Um, the the concretes, but happily the RSPB since the 1980s has had projects in the Hebrides and has helped farmers work in ways which are much more concrete friendly. Mm. But prior to the concrete becoming so very rare and retreating to those traditional macha grasslands in the Hebrides, they had been a common bird right throughout the UK, pretty much anywhere where there were hay meadows. And with the 
discovery of nitrate fertilizers, which environmentally are a dreadful thing because they, yeah. they, they release a great deal of carbon dioxide in their production, but they also change the nature of soils altogether and they kill off most soil biodiversity because they massively favor certain species of plant, particularly certain grasses, so wheat and barley and so on. And everything else struggles to compete. And of course, they change the soil chemistry. So they kill off the intricate webs of interaction between bacteria and fungi that have existed in soils for thousands of years. But what they did for many, many soils around the country was mean that they were able to be converted from hay meadows, either to grazing, which was shiny green monocultures of ryegrass, which are no good to any wildlife whatsoever, or to arable fields where crops could be grown. And so the traditional hay meadows were lost on an absolutely terrifying scale, something like 90% were lost mm. over the 20th century. And the corn crate just didn't have anywhere to live just bye bye corn crate. And so this glorious sound, um, which one of the, we'll come on much later to reintroduce concretes, one of the reintroduction scheme birds has returned to my village where I live for the past two years. And so it's, it's between inverted commas that I say that the sound of the concrete is wonderful because it's very raucous and it goes all night. And after a, after a while, even the most tolerant and broad-minded person is wanting to take their scythe <laughs> and slay the concrete. Um, but I feel immensely, immensely privileged to have this concrete who has for the last two years come back from Africa to sing within earshot of my house, which is just the most fabulous privilege on that introduction really for the listeners we'll give you a taste of what the corn crate sounds like now amazing lovely there we go <laughs> um so that was really interesting to hear about because that was like a domino effect of things that were going wrong from the speeding up of managing the land and then just destroying the meadow altogether. And we, we before we press record on here today, Nick, we were talking about flagship species and things. And would you say the corncrake is kind of, I don't, I mean, I'll say, is it, is it a flagship species? Because these meadows will benefit way more than just the corncrakes, you know, these, these are going to be supporting way more. So is this something that is like, the concrete is kind of at the at the front of in the UK. Yes, I think that's a, they they do count as a flagship species in that they're very popular. They're they're something that mm. people, if they hear them, they'll never forget the sound. And yeah. and if we are to restore concrete to the English landscape where, where they disappeared in the nineteen fifties, effectively they had been down yeah. to very very few indeed. If we are to restore them to the English language, we're, language landscape. Um, <laughs> going, no one's saying their name anymore. Yeah. <laughs> we're going to have to do it through recreation of habitat. And as you rightly mm. say, the recreation of habitat is, is going to be good, not just for the corncrake, but all of the other associated species. And of course, yeah. corncrakes being largely insectivorous themselves and their chicks being voracious little velociraptors tearing through the long grass hunting for, for bugs. You can't have healthy breeding concretes unless you've got these wonderful biodiverse meadows, yeah. which have not been treated with pesticides and with nitrates, because if they have been, they won't support the, the volume of life that concretes need in, which, in order to raise their chicks. I always find it weird when we, we talk about things like this, because in my head, and I know you're going to share this with me, when we talk about the restoration of meadows properly, like, you know, bringing back, like you said, the native grasses and the native flowers and managing that land better, in my head, it's a no-brainer. Like, I don't even know why it's questioned or why would you not? Because visually, economically, environmentally, it works. Do you have that? Like, there's a massive question mark in your head. Or maybe you actually know the reason why. Maybe you're going to turn around and go, well, Ryan, the reason why it's not done is is X. <laughs> you, you actually, you said the interesting word in the middle there when you said economically, because, of course, 
following the Second World War, there was the great leap forward in agriculture. And it was seen as as old fashioned and fuddy duddy to think in those terms of traditional stewardship. And, you know, hedges were ripped out on a vast, vast scale through the 60s and 70s. Farm ponds were filled in on an absolutely catastrophic scale. Something like 90% of farm ponds were filled in. Uh, And it was the slaying of the landscape, or at least the slaying of the wildlife that lived in the landscape. But it was seen as economically the thing to do. We need to be productive. And especially after you can understand it following the Second World War, which was a time of great insecurity. We were never going to be Mm. under anyone else's command again. We were never going to be at the mercy of anyone else's whims. We were going to be able to produce all our own food. And to do that, we needed to be modern and we needed to be world beating in our agriculture. And that meant we couldn't we couldn't stick with the old ways, the thick old hedges and the rough strips at the edge of the fields and the, and the ponds in which the turtle doves drank and the corn buntings drank and everything else. That all had to go. And so economically, we've got ourselves into a situation where farmers can't survive. However, you yeah. and I know that soil is another resource that is terrifyingly fragile. Both carbon and the health of our soils will scientifically, demonstrably be, well, carbon will be sequestered better by biodiverse soils, which are permanent and stable and are not being ploughed the whole time. Plus, they will hold water better, which will mean we have more water available to us, but we also are less susceptible to floods. But they're also going to be healthy soils. Plants make soils, obviously, in in partnership with with the the geological world plants make soils rotting plants and then all the bacteria and fungus fungi they interact with that's what makes soils and it is ultimately those soils that on which all our diet depends so so you're right it's a no-brainer but we need to shift the paradigm economically from this idea that just keep throwing on more and more pesticides throwing on more and more nitrate fertilizers producing more and more food that we have to understand that that's not sustainable. Mm. And in order for us to continue feeding from the earth, we need to put back into the earth. We need to restore healthy soils. We need to restore healthy biodiversity. And as a result of that, we get these wonderful meadows and the species that live in them, including the wonderful corncrake. And corncrakes themselves. So obviously, and we will come on to more, uh, more about this with curlews as well, towards the end but what are their numbers looking like so they've obviously had massive decline because of the reasons that you've mentioned so what were they at and where are they at now ah that's a very fine question there would have been thousands and thousands and thousands of corn crates Um, you could only ever really have known about the males because the males sing right through the mid-spring to the early summer and Mm. during that period they hope to attract two females so they'll nest once one female will nest uh, but the the incubation is only for a couple of weeks and then the chicks are emancipated from their mums after two, three weeks as well. So she might even breed again, but he might have attracted another female. So there would have been thousands and thousands of singing males. Now, I don't actually, shame on me, I don't have a figure off the top of my head for how many males there are singing. In the East Anglian Reintroduction Project, like this year, there were 19 singing males, which is a tiny number, but it's an awful lot better than had there been reintroduction project um in the hebrides we're talking maximum a few hundred wow okay so that's really tiny numbers yeah so tiny numbers but there would have been thousands and thousands and thousands of them right across the country before we got rid of all the hay meadows it's just mad isn't it it's just mad that just getting rid of that can just really have that knock-on effect and and like you said for for a species really that when you hear you never forget it would be a wonderful thing to have them back yeah. And when you live next to one for two years, you never forget it's it's <laughs> it's engraved on your soul. It sounds like living next door to student accommodation. Yeah, it's honest. very much like that, actually. Yeah, partying all night. And they really do sing the male sings all night. <laughs> um let's move on to curlews, because curlews is another species I've heard I've heard the name mentioned a lot. The same with corncrakes, but more so I've heard curlews for multiple reasons, because I follow nature people online. I have discussed land management with a lot of people on the podcast from a RSPB point of view, from a field sports and shooting point of view, which was incredibly 
bizarrely interesting. So the name Curlew has come up a lot. So what's going on with these? <laughs> so I was going to say, what's going on with these birds? Yeah, it's a pretty similar situation, sadly. That the curlew is is also a bird that wants to breed right the way across the UK, and it should be said in this context that the whole genus Numenius, which contains our our curlew, the Eurasian curlew, two species have become extinct within living memory. Or well, the Eskimo wow. curlew in yeah, the Eskimo curlew in North America, which bred in North America and then would have gone down to South America, to the far south of South America. That's probably slightly more than living memory. But the slender-billed curlew, which was a bird that nested in probably, I mean, we don't really know where they nested. They probably nested in the north of the steppes of Eurasia, and they used to go down to North Africa for the winter. And the slender-billed curlew, there are people alive who have seen slender-billed curlews up till the 80s, and they've now gone. In our lifetime, the oh slender-billed curlew has become extinct. And all curlews, the Far Eastern curlew is plummeting off the face of the earth. Probably the wimbrel, which is very widespread, is the best in terms of its, its global population. But a huge proportion of the global population of the, of the Eurasian curlew nests in the UK. And guess what we've done to the Eurasian curlew? We've mechanised and modernised the landscapes in which it used to nest. And so the Eurasian curlew is absolutely collapsing, really disappearing at a terrifying rate. And some of the most important, historically, some of the most important nesting habitats were, again, hay meadows. So in the upland farms, you've got the the really rough grazing up in the heather moorland, but you would always have yeah. had around the farmstead, you'd have had what was referred to as the in-by land. And the in-by land were these incredible meadows which were incredibly rich in flowers, in butterflies, all sorts of species. And that was the best habitat for breeding birds like lapwings, snipe, redshank and curlews. And again, with the introduction of nitrate fertilisers, you can just graze animals more effectively or produce silage more effectively with nitrate fertilisers on ryegrass than yeah. you can on the traditional meadows. And so huge numbers of these birds have been wiped off the face of the country. So are these in similar with the corncrakes, with the meadows, are they insectivorous as well? Are they? Yes, they are. Yes. The curlew is still doing far, far better nationally than corncrake, but the speed at which it is declining is what's particularly alarming. I was going to say, and that's similar because of the dis disappearance of habitat. I mean, where are they? So if they're still doing well, where are they doing well? <laughs> How are they holding on? They're, they're very widespread as, as breeding birds. So that curlews breed throughout the UK, but in most areas, mm. they've become extremely rare as breeding birds. So here in East Anglia, they're dotted around. They breed in farmland in the Brecks and on some heathland, for example, but they're scarce everywhere. Really, it, it is in uplands that they still maintain quite a, a foothold, a curly foothold, but the numbers have plummeted as a result of the loss of, of habitat. And without wishing to bash the, it's very, very easy for us in the green end of the spectrum to bash other people's interests and land use. But if you release 50, 60, 70 million pheasants into the landscape every year, then, and most of them are not shot, most of them are killed on roads and so on, mm. then you will inevitably, it's really basic ecology, drive up populations of mid-range scavengers like carrion crows and brown rats and foxes. The very things which keepers would claim that they control are actually being driven to be far, far, far more common by the release of pheasants because we release the same amount of meat in non-native pheasants into the countryside every year as make up all of our native birds. That's insane. That's the second time I've heard that. It's absolute. And, and you only need to do a tiny thought experiment to demonstrate how insane it is. Because we've always shot pheasants in this country for hundreds and hundreds of years, we sort of go, yeah, yeah, okay, pheasants. But if you just said, okay, we're going to release 17 million chickens into the country. So, yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's just, yeah. and, and a chicken is actually just another species of pheasant if you, from, from in the Well, bar. that's it. It's from the same area it's, of the world. It's the same so area it's just... of the world and it's the same family of birds. And if we were to yeah. say, okay, well, I'm just going to release 70 million chickens, people will go, you what? You what? It's crazy. Can't do that. The fact that we release more weight of non-native birds into the landscape every year than makes up all of our native birds. That's insane. And that drives up populations of generalist 
predators like carrion crows, foxes, rats. And of course, they have a disproportionate impact on ground nesting birds like curlews. Yes, well, absolutely. And this was, do you know what? Funny enough, we've recently spoken about this on an episode with a great deer stalker and a great land manager called Megan Rowland. And she said one of the things with pheasant shooting specifically is quantity over quality. So it's quantity of birds to make up for the lack of quality of keeping those birds in. So those birds, you know, oh, they always get out. So let's release another 30 million. It's like, well, that's not the best way to manage it. (laughs) It's really not. And it's, I mean, it's just such a no brainer that it's going to have a catastrophic impact on the landscape. It's, It's nuts. So all of that will inevitably have an effect on birds like curlews which are which are declining really really fast but the reason one of the reasons curlews have been talked about a lot this year is because for years and years and years the MOD the Ministry of Defence have been applying for licenses and and you can understand why this isn't a criticism of them to destroy curlew nests because curlews like to be able to see well around their nest and they also like areas with a big fence around them because they're better protected. And so a place they very commonly nest is at the edge of an airstrip where they represent a flight hazard. And so for many, many years, the MOD has been applying for licenses to destroy curly nests. And someone very cleverly at Natural England came up with the idea, well, hang on a second, these hundreds and hundreds of curly eggs are being destroyed every year under license mm. completely legally. Why don't we try at least, given that the curlew is collapsing, to put them back into the wild? And that's where the project, which my friends are engaged in uh, at Pensthorpe, came along. And um, to a smaller extent, the Wildfire and Wetlands Trust is also engaging in the same project, but down in the southwest of the UK. And so that's really one of the reasons that curlews are being talked about a lot, because this year, Pensthorpe, which, as I say, is a mile from me, a mile and a half from me, my friends there and the other cultural team, they've raised raised 80 curlews and released them. That's Uh, amazing. Yeah. And they were all birds that were destined. So they arrive as eggs and every single one of those eggs would have been destroyed had it not been for this project. And as a result, half of them have been released at Ken Hill, which is where Springwatch is coming from. I don't have a TV myself, so I've got no idea what I'm talking about here. But um, <laughs> but Spring, I'm told there's a thing called Springwatch. So, yeah, it's a bit of a thing. Is it? Okay, so Springwatch apparently is coming from uh, Ken Hill and the other half were released on the Sandringham Estate, the Queen's Estate in northwest Norfolk. Amazing. I was going to say, that's a lovely like uh, segue into this project, actually, because... Talk, I mean, I've, A, I can't believe that's how we've been getting curlew eggs from the Ministry of Defence flight centres. That's just, I don't know, there's something there. I don't know what it is yet, but there is something there to joke about. But let's talk about Pensthorpe Conservation Trust. So they've, you said 80 curlews they've successfully released in the last year? Uh, that, so that's this year. This is the first year that Pensthorpe's been involved because they've been breeding corn crakes for release. So these are captive corn crates. The parent birds are captives and they're all descended from birds that were legally under license collected as eggs as part of a strategy to reintroduce them. They were collected in the Hebrides originally, the original founder stock. We're now on the great grandparents of the founder stock, our grandchildren rather. So (laughs) they have a breeding colony of corn crates. And for years and years and years, through a number of different factors, the young were raised by hand. So the parents didn't raise them. But but for all sorts of reasons in the past couple of years, the, the parent corncrakes have been raising the chicks. And actually, this has proved to be more successful. So 80 curlews have been released this year, but 97 corncrakes have been released wow. this year as well, out of about a thousand corncrakes that have been released over the last few years. So Pensthorpe has been That's doing incredible. this for ages. And the reason Pensthorpe didn't initially get involved with the curlews a couple of years ago was because they were so busy producing corn crakes <laughs> and they didn't have time to go into curly. But now that the mother corn crakes are raising their own young, yeah. Pensthorpe is able to take on the curlews as well. And both of these projects are funded by Natural England. So they're, they're both, you know, government sanctioned projects to try and, well, in the case of the curlews, prevent all of these eggs being destroyed 
and put mm. curlews back into the wild that would otherwise have been omelettes. And uh, in the case of the corn crakes, it's a long-term project to breed them and release them here in East Anglia. And as I say, we've released 97 corn crakes this That's year. amazing. All of which were bred just, just up the road here. Yeah, and every one of them has a genetic profile, so we know who it is. Yeah. Um, every one of them has a ring, so we know who it is. The, the curlews all go out with a, a leg flag and a ring. So you can even see a leg flag. A leg flag, yep. So you can What's e a leg flag? Well, it's, it's a coloured ring which has got a little bit that sticks out the side and has got a code oh. on it, so that in the field a bird watcher is able to say, "Oh yes, I saw such and such." If you were a bird watcher, you'd know these things, right? Um, <laughs> but uh, not not that I said that, that was, was a very jab. Scorn. That that was a jab. <laughs> it was it was a definite jab. And believe me, with the curl you speak, you can do quite a jab. Um, um, the the curlews all have leg flags so that bird watchers can report on their comings and goings. With the corncracks, it's That's a little cool. bit trickier. When they come back, you've essentially got to catch the male to check who he is by his ring. Uh, okay. But that's quite okay. easily done. Obviously, it's got to be done with great care and by people who have all the right permits to catch the, the corn crakes. And it's done, you know, they're held for five minutes or whatever and then released again. So there's no harm done to them. They go on to breed. But the curlews are rather easier to see. And we do know that when Slimbridge started raising curlews from mm. the same project a couple of years ago, some of those birds bred in the wild this year. So we know that they Amazing. are integrating into the wild population but but really that's those are the two most exciting projects of the Pensthorpe Conservation Trust. So Pensthorpe is a place that's very well known as, as a beautiful nature reserve. It's got two wonderful scrapes. It's got amazing gardens which are great for wildlife. It's It's got all sorts of things to see but really this is the work that goes on behind the scenes. This is the really skilled, cutting-edge avicultural work, which is reinserting these birds back into the wild. And it's that that they're keen for their friends and colleagues to talk about, because it's amazing, amazing work. And I'm I'm so proud to know the friends yeah. who, who work there, who are, you know, for months of the year, their their whole life is being... In fact, as it happens, all the aviculturalists are... Oh, Sparrowhawk going past my window. Um, it was a <laughs> Live yeah. birding. Look yeah, at that. exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Um, normally, I've got earphones in, and so normally I'd have heard the alarm calls of the sparrows and the starlings. And, and a week ago, <laughs> there I was, was no like, judgment. Yeah. There was no judgment. Yeah. <laughs> but because you'd made me put earphones in, I, I didn't. But anyway, <laughs> female sparrows. <laughs> I'm anyway, so anti-bird that yeah. I like to disadvantage birders. Uh, on the yeah, that's right. It's a handicap. Um, but anyway, um, the aviculturalists at Pensworth are all women, as it happens. So they are the mothers of these corncrakes and these curlews. Amazing. My goodness me, the dedication, the work that goes into it and as i say 80 curlews and 97 corncrakes have gone into the wild from their care this year alone and the same will happen again next year and in the case of corncrakes it's been going on for years and years and years it's, it, those those numbers are amazing considering especially with corncrakes considering what the numbers are looking like yeah that's quite yep. a hefty bunch it going is. back in and, and like and it's very clever what they do they have 15 aviaries with females in so they've got 15 uh, females all of whom are descended from birds that came from the hebrides originally well they came as as tiny chicks from the hebrides yeah. um originally i think um but that was a number of years ago so these are their great 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 offspring um but they have 15 females and i think it's 13 males and according to who's most related to whom they then switch the males between because as i said the male will breed with more than one female in a year so if they want to yeah. push certain genes in the population they'll use certain males particularly but if people want to see the corn crakes i mean it's now getting late in the season you can't see the breeding population but any corn crake who any corn crake who retires from the program who's bred for a number of years or indeed females who abandon their eggs too often or males mm. who are firing blanks they all end up in in, <laughs> in an amazing display area called the wader aviary at pencil so you can actually go and during the spring and summer and that's autumn, amazing you can actually go and see corn crakes and these are corn crakes who are you know they're the first cousins or the grandparents of birds that are that are living in the wild and migrating to africa even now that's that's the mind-blowing thing about these corn crakes they are genetically programmed to migrate to africa despite the fact that their parents have been in captivity through several generations so they still would go they still, they still migrate. go yeah 
That's incredible. Isn't it's it? just, it's just mind numbing. You know, we think we're so clever with our iPhones and our no. and our everything like that. And here's a bird. We've lost it. Here's a bird whose brain is literally the size, less than a broad bean, slightly bigger than a pea, and as a bird that's been raised in captivity when it's 45 days old, is able to surf the magnetic field of the earth yeah. and fly to a place it's never been to eat food it's never encountered before. And as it goes, it will learn the positions of rivers and mountains and seas and the constellations in order to guide itself back again next spring. And you, Ryan, are not a bird watcher. <laughs> I think I win this round. <laughs> I'm going to get so many emails from this episode going, yeah, Ryan. Yeah, exactly. Well, I say bring it, frankly. Bring it. Get you. <laughs> is, this why you is this why you wanted to do this episode? Is this a I, I just wanted to break you. It's a, it's, a, it's a group of people who've been contacting me saying, Nick, we think you're the final weapon. We think we, could, we can break you. Anyway, I do feel I need to add at this point that the corn crate, you, everyone needs to go online and look at the corn crate's wing because in the corn crate's wing, there's this fabulous dark coppery red color and you are modeling a very nice corn crate's wing on, on your head there your your coiffure is very corn crate's wing and corn crate's wing is very this season if i may say so i mean look maybe i'm gonna be the billy elliot of the dance or the bird world and i everything in my life said i wouldn't get into birds and next thing you know i'll be running through a meadow scampering through meadows well i think you scampering should come to through norfolk. the meadows i think you should come to norfolk it would be a great pleasure to introduce you to the corn crakes if you come to norfolk I'd, i would absolutely this is the thing this is the thing right i do, i love birds i just didn't overly find them interesting mm. they're amazing they're incredible animals they do things that i can't do and lots of other animals cannot do and especially like you said to have that instinct to go i need to bugger off now and go to africa and nowhere to go mm. that is just absolute. and that's what you know i've behavior breeds and i think we forget that a lot of the time behavior breeds on and when it's so instinctive in that brain to switch it on. It is incredible. I'd love to come to Norfolk and come and see it. I'm taking that invitation. Please do. We can show you all kinds of things. We can we can find you all manner of things here in Norfolk to show you. There's all sorts going on. Pensop uh, Conservation Trust, have they... So they're releasing them. So I guess, have they been bringing back these meadows that these birds require? That's a really good question. So in the case of the corncrake, uh, the initial releases in the first few years were in the Neen washes, which is actually just over the border in Cambridgeshire. And mm. the birds did return there for a number of years, uh, small numbers of them, because obviously migration is terribly risky and even wild raised yeah. chicks, many, many, many of them wouldn't make it back. And then wild birds started turning up at the Wildfowl and Wetlands Trust Wellney Reserve. And then for all sorts of reasons, I mean, complicated, not, not politics, but just NGO relationships and things like that. Yeah. The scope of the project had to change. And they started when it was no longer possible to release them at Menin. They started releasing them up here in North Norfolk along the River Wensum and working with local farmers. And that's had moderate success. And as I say, we've had 19 singing birds in East Anglia, mostly in Norfolk this year. But again, birds from this project up here in North Norfolk kept going back to the ooze washes to Welney. And you pretty much have to, the birds are the most important stakeholder. So you yeah. pretty much have to listen to what they're telling you. And they're telling you that the habitat, the amazing herb-rich fens, they're, they're some of the best fen. So a fen is a wet meadow that is fed by alkaline water. And they have this, okay. yeah, so they have this glory. So a bog is a, is a wet habitat, a marsh fed by acid water. And a fen is a is an alkaline one. And the fens Ooh. at Welney are just, having been out in them a couple of times in the last month to release crakes, um, they are just exquisite. And the crakes, that's what the crakes want to do. That's where they want to go. So that's where a negotiation between Natural England and Pensthorpe and various others, um, that's where it was decided that for the next few years, the crakes would be released. Amazing. What yeah. interesting. I, I like that, that you have to like follow the birds. And well, yeah. well, I guess with any any wildlife reintroductions, it's yeah. like, you know, the animal will dictate what the best Ultimately, yes. And, it, and if you're releasing them in the wrong place or the wrong habitat or they're getting the wrong food, they're going to tell you and they're going to tell you by dying or by not succeeding or by just going somewhere yeah. else. 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That's fascinating. Mm. Oh, I can't wait to come up and come and see some. Please now. do. I Please really do. want to come and see some. Yeah. Well, look, I'm going to ask my last question now, and this is this is the biggest question on the podcast. I'm fascinated about what your answer is going to be, Nick. If you could pass on one bit of advice onto everyone on the planet about the natural world, what would you pass on? Four words. It is our home. I really like that. Yeah, it's our home, and in the same way as you would take care of your physical material home, ultimately we have to take care of our home. And even if you do it from a purely selfish point of view, we now have abundant evidence, scientific, hardcore scientific evidence, that we need a healthy environment. We need healthy soils. We need healthy water. We need livable temperatures. And we need biodiversity. We know factually that the best habitats at sequestering carbon are the biodiverse ones. We know that the best ones for filtering water and storing water and preventing floods are the biodiverse ones. We know that the ones that can provide the great, the best quality soils are the biodiverse ones. We know that the ones that have the most resources which humans might need to use, such as drugs. For example, if a, if a new virus came along and you had to develop medicines quite quickly, that sort of thing. We, we know that we need biodiversity. So, so quite simply, the message about the natural world is that it is our home. I feel like if you had a microphone in your hand, you would have dropped it and walked off. I would have done, that. yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it was perfect. You're so right. You're absolutely... And I know everyone listening to this podcast now is nodding along with you because it's it's that simple. It's not simple, but the reality of it is that simple. Well, Nick, do you know what? You've converted me... I didn't need converting. I like birds. I'll get a t-shirt and I'll wear it that says, I like birds. <laughs> but yes, it's. I, I can't wait to come and see some curlews and corn crakes. I'll be, I'll, be, I'll be over the moon if I saw a corn crake as well now. Now I know the rarity. Excellent. We'll have to arrange it. Um, but thank you so much for coming on to this episode and chatting about the two birds and the work that Pensport Conservation Trust are doing. It's, it's incredible. And you know what? Hats off to them because to know that there are people out there dedicating their careers and their time to as two specific animals as well is just is absolutely fantastic. They really are doing an incredible, incredible job. And as I say, it's such an honour to have them as my friends. Wonderful. Well, enjoy the rest of your week, my friend, and I'll keep in touch and we'll arrange that meet up. Please do. Please do. See you soon. Thanks, Ryan. Bye. Thanks again for listening, everyone. If you'd like to keep up to date with the projects and work Nick is working on, then you can follow him on social media. As always, his social media tags are in the write-up of this episode. And you can also get in touch with me at IntoTheWildPod at gmail.com or on social media at IntoTheWildPod on Twitter and IntoTheWildPodcast on Instagram. Whether you just want to say hello or share some thoughts on an episode or even let me know what you want to hear about next. A reminder that any views or opinions expressed in today's show belong to the person who said them and do not represent Into the Wild or anyone that we have worked with or are affiliated with. Into the Wild aims to always be a free show, however, running and producing it is not free. If you'd like to support us by saying thanks, then you can do so by buying me a coffee. Our Kofi link is in the write-up of this episode. But until next time, keep well, stay safe and live the good life. <laughs>